Welcome back to Early Music Monday. Hope your holiday went massively well. Today we're going to talk a little bit about starting the year off right and how to not starve as quote-unquote starving artists. This is Early Music Monday. Okay, so with the new year always comes this real strong, I don't know what it is. It's something primal in our nature nature that's like we get this mental break and then all of a sudden we are going to completely change who we are and we're going to do better and we're going to set these goals and we're going to strive and we're going to do it. There's a book we're going to talk about in another episode probably when it comes to musical training probably um called atomic habits it's really good it outlines like how to stick with creating new habits <clears throat> excuse me and uh we'll talk about that that seems like it would be an appropriate way to start the new year with that book but we're going to talk about something else because why not but with setting some of those goals Part of the motivation that I've had over the break and with setting New Year's resolutions or goals or whatnot, um, I was uh, put onto a book by Andrew Maxfield called uh, Real Artists Don't Starve by, hold please, who is it by? Jeff, I can't remember how to say his last name, Goins, Jeff Goins, Goins? Goins, Goins, G-O-I-N-S. Anyway, I probably should know who that is, but I don't. And uh, it's really fascinating. I'm about halfway through. And he gives some strategies. The interesting thing is the subtitle of the book is called Timeless Strategies for Thriving. It, I mean, it, it's timeless at, well... The full thing is timeless strategies for thriving in a new creative age. And we're all about timelessness on this show, about how old things are new and new things are old and nothing's really new or old. It's all the same, repackaged and repurposed and redelivered and rebranded. So that also really caught my attention of, okay, well, if these are timeless strategies, then artists must have been doing this for a long time. And it's actually really fascinating. He uses Michelangelo as an example. He talks about the myth, where the myth of the starving artist came from, like Bohemia, like La Boheme, the opera about these starving artists, right? And just nothing is important except my art and I will serve no one except art and the art that speaks to me and I will art and I'm gonna art my art so much artfully more betterly artful than your art and but they don't really actually care about being better at art they just care about their art and who ca- I don't need money money is just a uh shackles or whatever all this other stuff right That's maybe a bit extreme, but that's kind of the perception or the myth or kind of the uh, 
perceived outlook of the starving artist is as long as they're doing their art, they're going to do their art and they're going to be starving, but they don't care and they're fine. And the book kind of talks about how that myth came about through artistic works like La Boheme, the opera and all these things and how it's, it's kind of silly. And I kind of, and I tend to agree if you can't make money doing your art, then you can't produce your best art. Because as stupid as it is, we all, money is a thing that exists and is necessary. So instead of trying to just ignore that, the best way would be to find out how to thrive with your art to make money to produce more great art. And it's not about becoming super wealthy or famous that's not necessarily what the book's premise is about is how to become famous but it's how to make a good comfortable living through your art without having to sell out or sacrifice but without also like just being this poor starving person who's homeless so it's a super fascinating book. In the introduction, I'm going to read to you some of the points that he makes. There's like 12 distinctions he makes, the artist or the author makes between starving artists and thriving artists. So I'll just read them. Number one, the starving artists believe you must be born an artist. The thriving artist knows you must become one. The starving artist strives to be original. The thriving artist steals from his influences. And these are all chapters in the book. So if you're thinking, whoa, wait a minute, there's a lot of detailed description about each of these that shows how it's done. It's not just like, oh, cool, you like copied and pasted from Beethoven. Like uh, there's a lot of clarification needed on some of these. So don't just knee jerk and say, whoa, that's wrong. But because I would at first been like, uh, what? But after you really read it and go into it, you see, whoa, he's right. And he takes a lot of examples from history. Um, The starving artist believes he has enough talent. The thriving artist apprentices under a master. The starving artist is stubborn about everything. The thriving artist is stubborn about the right things. The starving artist waits to be noticed. The thriving artist cultivates patrons. The starving artist believes he can be creative anywhere. The thriving artist goes where the creative work is already happening. The starving artist always works alone. The thriving artist collaborates with others. The starving artist does his work in private. The thriving artist practices in public. Well, that's terrifying. The starving artist works for free. The thriving artist always works for something. The starving artist sells out too soon. The thriving artist owns his work. The starving artist masters one craft. The thriving artist masters many. And finally, the starving artist despises the need for money. The thriving artist makes money to make art. So, it goes through and talks about basically then those specific distinctions and comparisons in the context of three major themes, mindset, market, and money. 
and how then those distinctions, how we take ourselves from starving artist to thriving artist in those three areas. And so the first part is all about talking about mindset and how we change our mindset to think differently. And then the market, the importance of relationships, how to mar- how to like market yourself. And then, you know, the last one is about money and how to like create an entrepreneurial model, I guess, with your art. So it's super fascinating. I'm not like all the other books I've talked about. I'm not all the way done with it yet. I'm about halfway, but I get so excited. I can't contain myself. And, and I think, I think, you know, maybe I'll do a part two of this later where we talk about specific strategies for parts two and three, but the part about changing the mindset is the hardest one, I think, because so many people, and it's a true, I mean, how many, think about the, the office when it's like Jim and Pam are going to meet Jim's brothers and they prank him by basically pranking Pam, making fun of her that, you know, there's not a lot of money in the arts, right? That's what they say. And, you know, maybe Pam can pay the check by drawing a picture on this napkin And it's like, the reason that's funny is because everyone in this audience has had people say, oh, well, like, that's good. Uh, You know, you're, you're, you're not going to make a lot of money in the arts. So, you know, whatever. And you just, there's just this misperception that there's not a lot of money in the arts because, and maybe for good reason, that there are a lot of people who just have accepted that and don't find a way or think there is a way to really thrive and comfortably make a living doing art. And so I think about, well, I think about Renaissance music. Is it possible you need to take, you'd compare a big mega super rock star of the day? Well, there's no real rock stars anymore because no one, they're all solo pop artists. But even that, for example, the music streaming service has changed everything. So being in a band is so not profitable that people go out on their own. And then once they're independently well off and well known, then they collaborate if they're really good. The best artists all collaborate. Ed Sheeran collaborates all the time. And his songs are always really fresh because of that they have a fresh sound i think and so and even and taylor swift like she changed it up she did new things she collaborated with like these folk artists like the national if you know who that is think about if you go back to our bread and butter in the renaissance you think about thomas tallis and william bird they put together this Canciones Sacre collection for Elizabeth I, I mean, it wasn't really that successful of a financial uh, endeavor, but that's probably for other reasons. But they they worked together a lot, and, well, a lot, I guess, is in air quotes, but they studied with masters. Thomas Tallis taught William Byrd. William Byrd studied with a master. There's so many principles from this Real Artists Don't Starve book that can be found in so many more specific examples of music of the Renaissance that uh, 
and 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 throughout time that you really see whoa okay well this is how artists do it and we all know the the ones that were super wealthy or super famous and we know composers like that now or choirs if you're looking to start a choir or if you're looking to revamp the music of your public school or your college or or if you're just an enthusiast who enjoys it whatever your endeavors are it's the same principles that apply because creating a business being an entrepreneur is an art form whether your work is inherently artistic or not is different but there's an art to it so it makes me think of uh well and so i read this article in conjunction with this i also read this article um on JSTOR's website that talks about not so much music from uh, from England, which is what we talk about a lot, but music of the continent more generally. And something that's interesting is you have this concept of everything being so close together literally like geographically close together. And so there's composers who kind of stayed in their uh, city or town or wherever they were patroned. And then you have other composers who traveled around a lot. And so there's this article in uh, Studies in the Italian Renaissance published by University of Chicago Press, um, the Harvard Center for Italian Renaissance Studies is uh, the organization. Anyway, the article is called Aspects of Clerical Patronage and Musical Migration in the Renaissance. And at first I started, I was like, this doesn't really have anything to do with thriving artists, but it kind of illustrates one of the concepts of real artists go to where art is happening and finding patrons and that is the whole goal of what we are doing of you know everyone wants people to everyone wants the really wealthy financial supporter to swoop in and save the day with a you know fifty thousand dollar donation or a hundred thousand or million or whatever right that's like that's what everyone's kind of hoping for and they hit the jackpot literally with that but there's a different way to do it. And the book talks, Jeff in uh, Real Artists Don't Starve talks about what finding real patronage really is. And it's basically trying to build super fans. Think of the all the fangirls for Taylor Swift. I tell you what, there are people who I have met personally, who I know, who I am friends with, one of which who I am married to, that love Taylor Swift with an incompar- incomparable love, it's like it's like she's like their patron saint, you know. It's kind of like they're all, and maybe and maybe this is why it seems like an abused dog or an abused animal who finally found an owner who was nice to them and like ne- never leave their side. It's kind of like that with Taylor Swift. It's like every girl who's ever been heartbroken as a teenager by 
dudes who are act like less than uh, chivalrous. And it's like they all found each other and made this club and Taylor Swift is the patron saint of broken hearts. And the fandom is insane. They fangirl for a girl, Taylor Swift. It's wild stuff. And so, without necessarily, you don't even have to, the funny thing is, is whatever, if you're a director of a high school choir, you can turn your high school choir into something like that for your high school students because that's the first, those have got to be your first patrons. Your students have to love it. They got a fangirl for choir. And then you turn that into helping their friends see the experience. That's a hard sell. But if you can get them to be your patrons, then you get the, the community at large involved. And I think that at the at college, in college, it's the same thing. And then you go to recruit and you turn high school students towards your school, fangirling for your students because they sang with them, whatever. I'm not a college professor. I don't claim to have these great recruiting strategies. I just know what I've seen firsthand. And the same thing with early music. If you're trying to be someone who is just really appreciative of early music or you're trying to sell early music or you're in a in a situation similar to Sound of Ages where you're starting a group and you want to sell early music, how are you going to turn it into just getting fans? Well, Taylor Swift sang about heartbreak in a way that everyone has experienced. How can we turn early music into something that relates like, oh, everyone's experienced this. <laughs> interesting and so f making it relatable which we've talked about a bunch and we will talk about it a bunch more a bunch of stuff we got to do about it i like saying the word bunch i say it weird apparently according to my mother and my wife they always like you say bunch really weird anyway side note unrelated but back on track we talk about musical patronage and musical migration, clerical patronage, sorry, and musical migration in the Renaissance. And this article talks about that there, there's these kind of centers of music throughout Europe in the Renaissance time, you know, between the 15th and 17th century, where composers kind of migrate for various reasons. And they talk about plague, they talk about war, they talk about patrons passing away. And it's like, well, I was employed as the court composer for this really wealthy duke, and then he passed away, and his heir doesn't like my music, so I have to go somewhere else. Nice. That sounds terrifying and terrible. And they followed the music, and they, fo they followed not just the music, but they followed the money. So you think about Ferrara um, or Mantua in Italy in the Renaissance, and they were kind of these centers of, you know, Ferrara more specifically, of avant-garde, artistic. It was like this fervor. You could picture like, uh, you know, 19th century United States religious revivalism. It's all these, you got these massive fields and preachers in tents like all over and people like going to the revival with revivalist energy. It's kind of like, that's how I picture Ferrara in uh, in the 16th century 
and you just have all these artists together and they're they're collaborating with each other they're learning from each other they're performing with for each other and with each other they're writing this avant-garde stuff and and we think about that and we know that and we understand that and that generally is taught but then with the thing we don't think about is that's also where the money's at there is this we need to follow the money to so to speak and fi- because rich people want to be entertained guess who else wants to be entertained poor people everybody wants to be entertained and what type of entertainment are we bringing them and can we find people who want to be entertained by the art that we are doing and be willing to ask them like you may think that you know i'm just going to do the music that i want to do and no one else gets to tell me and i'm going to do my art but that's just that's what starving artists do and when when uh, jeff talks about being stubborn about the right things it's it's about the quality of your work but not necessarily about the exact specifications of every aspect of your work or anything like that it, just because you do a pops concert doesn't mean you're a sellout it means you know who your patrons are because the world has changed today the patrons aren't the rich dukes the patrons are the masses the open market worldwide you have this ability to to produce your art to whatever market you want through the internet and you can interwebs yourself around all over the place. And so how are you going to thrive and get patrons? Is And it's things we've talked about before. This is just a different way of talking about the same thing of, you know, you make it relatable to them. You find a way to connect a story, et cetera, et cetera. But the point is, is that looking at it with the goal of, that you don't have to sacrifice your art, however, whatever early music connection you have, whatever connection to creating art you have and whatever field or uh, role that you play, you have to develop really good patrons and be humble and willing to learn from, from them and from others studying with a master Something that I think is really interesting about Andrew Maxfield, um, and he's not even on the show to defend himself, (laughs) but is that he didn't get his undergraduate or master's degree in composition, but he studied individually, privately with a master who we've had on the show, um, Philip Lasser, teacher at Juilliard. And that, that, idea of finding an apprenticeship i think an apprenticeship is so much more i mean i guess i'm talking specifically to composers but i think that there's some value in studying instead of going to the best music school because it's the best music school finding a composition teacher who you think is really there's an american composer that i think is incredible his name's david conti and he teaches at the san francisco conservatory and i would love to take private lessons with david conti his style is not 100 percent my style and, and and his aesthetic is slightly different 
but he has a really cool compositional voice and has really great techniques that I would love to learn from and apply. I would love to study with Owen Park or one of the uh, Kenneth, I, I mean, well, Kenneth Layton, Herbert Howells are not possible to study with, but maybe one of their students. You think about people who studied with Nadia Boulanger. Everyone, it's not just about the degree, and I think we need to bring that back. It is not just higher education or college. It's about studying with a master, learning their techniques, artfully, tactfully, intentionally, and subtly stealing from them, borrowing their influence, and then going with it on your own and not trying to be like, you know, we think of being the most original. I have to do something original. It even goes back to kind of contradict our previous episode about blue oceans. I myself get caught in the trap of thinking that the blue ocean then has to be a completely original idea that no one's ever thought of before. And I've thought about that and I get trapped. I got trapped in that all the time in composing of just like, cool. I either love something too much to where, and I didn't have the skills to where I literally just sounded just like, I think of my band. We were the Red Hot Chili Peppers, just not as good because I loved it so much and I wanted to emulate it and I wanted to have that same vibe, but I wasn't skilled enough to add my own voice to it. And so I just sounded just like the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Exactly. And if you don't know who the Red Hot Chili Peppers are, well, I'm sure you've heard of it. But if you don't listen to them, you should go and listen. It's funky. It's rocking. It's awesome. But then it's like, and then I went to the other extreme of, okay, I'm going to create something awesome and original and no one's ever done it. And I would sit there and think, well, what has no one done? That is the dumbest question in the history of the world. What has no one done? And it goes back to our, uh, again, previous episodes talking about how do you say something when everything's been said? And you look back to the past, you look to the masters, and you humbly learn from them. And not just in composing, but in conducting I tried so hard at the start to be like, okay, I'm gonna do, I'm gonna make Sound of Ages unlike any choir in the world. And then the more I listened to other professional choirs, the more I realized that everyone has already done every idea I've ever had. Awesome, awesome, cool. So there's no market. It's all red ocean, blood in the water, oversaturation of market. Okay, well, what am I gonna do about it? I'm not gonna just create something that's never been done. That's not, that doesn't exist. Well, maybe it does exist, but over time and after a long period of transition and working through stealing craftfully and intentionally and artfully into then something that is unique to you because of the elements that you combined. So... I'm just really passionate about this because I I I know myself formerly and if I'm being honest right now I'm talking to college students whether you're undergrad, masters, doctorate, whatever. I'm or or new conductors 
or new composers, people like myself that are just kind of emerging out into this world that we call choral music slash early music slash music more broadly. And I know myself and I know what I used to be like and I know I was that person who is falling into every trap of the starving artist, every single trap, every single one of these things, all 12 that he said. I was like, huh, cool. I literally did all of those things. I thought I had enough talent. I was stubborn in everything. I was just waiting to be noticed because that's how I thought it. That's how I thought it all worked. Here's another question. Side note, who's to say? So I think about all of these, all this new music coming out. If you listen to Spotify and like New Music Friday, first of all, most of it's garbage. And it's, there's pretty much everything is marked explicit. And I'm not necessarily like a prude, but I mean, the, the name of the song has the F word in it. The first words are, I'm effing lonely. Like, come on, we got to be, there's got to be a more poetic way to say that. Like, okay, anyway, side note over. But, oh, see, I got so distracted. Why did I even say that? New Music Friday, Spotify. This is why I need a co-host so they can remind me what the heck I was about to say. Why I went on that tangent. Anyway, it's gone. Oh, no, I remember. Because most, but there are, the thing that's good about them is that there are a lot of collaborations between different artists. I'll use Ed Sheeran again. He wrote a whole album, Collaborations. The album's called Number Six. And every single song on there is a collaboration. And they all have this really different sound to them. And they sound different than most of his other music. And I think it's some of his best stuff. And it, he, the way Ed Sheeran talks about his collaborative work and how much he learns from it and how much, like, I just think that that is the most amazing attitude and perspective on how to create new music. And I thought to myself, why don't composers do that of classical music? Why don't two composers get together and say, Let's collaborate on this. Let's write a piece together. I don't know if in the choral composing world, I don't know if I've ever heard of that. And if I and if someone else knows, they can write in and tell me about it because that's amazing. But I've even talked to my friend Steve about it. He he has this amazing musicality in him. And he comes up with stuff all the time. He's a brilliant composer, but he doesn't write anything down. He, like, hates writing it down. And he gets stuck. And then I step in and say, well, what if you took that this way? And he's like, oh, that's a good idea. I never thought of that. That's awesome. And vice versa. He does the same thing for me. When I'm like, hey, I'm stuck with this. What What do you think? And he's like, yeah, that's really cool. You should do this next. And I'm like, oh, dude, brilliant. And uh, collaborations like true collaborations of learning from each other instead of going into that collaboration with what can I get out of this instead of what can I give? Like what what genius can I contribute? But what can I learn, I guess, is a better way to say that, um, is a really good way to approach not starving as an artist. And that doesn't even necessarily have to be with other choral musicians, but are we collaborating with our patrons? Are we collaborating with 
filmmakers, with visual artists, with dancers, with theater people, with uh, actors, with, I don't know, ventriloquists, with comedians. You could collaborate with all kinds of people to make something really cool and something that's slightly different, borrowing from elements that would seemingly be unrelated. That's very cool. So my New Year's resolution this year is that I'm going to not starve. I mean, luckily, I'm not. Well, that's well, long story. We'll talk about that in part two of don't quit your day job. You can work on it. And that's something that comes from a book called Shoe Dogs by Phil Knight, the story of Nike, and talks about how you know, he would go to work and then come home and work on Nike in the evenings. And that became Nike. That's how all the great art and, and companies and things come about is you use your current job to contribute, not detract from the art or business that you want to make. Okay, and I just have to say this last bit. I was going to move on, but I just had this thought. This is the thing that is crazy about at least the society here in the Western United States, but it seems kind of to be at least all over the country. But of just like, I have so many students who are like, yeah, I love music a lot, but I want to do something that makes money. And I just want to shake them and be like, what do you think? Why do you think that? Why do you think that? Musicians can't make money because they think that it's either make millions and become famous or starve. It's this all-or-nothing, zero-sum game. That's not true. And that's one other thing that Jeff Goins, Goins how, why do I have a hard time saying his name, whatever, talks about in the book is that real artists master a lot of skills. And you have to kind of reconcile the balance between your one thing when we talked about the book, The One Thing, versus mastering a lot of skills and being really versatile, because both are true. And how do we find the balance? I would love to have a discussion with someone about that as well. But anyway, there's so many ways to like piece together a really good career as a musician, singer, conductor, composer, teacher, private teacher, education, musicology, writing, who's to say that, again, there's so many ways to make it and to do things that if I, if I have students in front of me who express interest in music, there's so many options. In Utah, if there was one person who would study really well and get really, really, really good at the art of recording choirs, and was like and it was through the private sector or something you could make so much money just going around and offering to record choirs in good spaces there are plenty who are good at that but it their specialty isn't on choral recording but there's a market for one why not go and study that there is a great market for music and movies like technology stuff that's totally untapped there's this new Dolby atmos recording thing 3d there's so many things there's so many ways to get really good at a lot of different things 
So that is my like soapbox part of this is to young people thinking that, okay, well, I'm going to do this and it's not going to make much money, but uh, so I'm maybe going to do something else. No, you can, if you are creative and think hard and work hard, meet people, patrons, that kind of thing, you can make it really well by piecing together. It doesn't have to look the same. Everyone does the undergrad, master's, doctorate, professorship, and they think that that's the end-all, be-all of choral conducting this, but it's not. There's so many alternatives if if you will let yourself think of it that way. Rant over. That's my goal this year, that I'm committing to you live on this podcast, and so I have to be accountable, is to find ways to improve my art form by collaborating, by finding patrons, by doing all those things. And I think as, I mean, right now it doesn't seem like the pandemic is slowing down, but I think it actually is. And as the pandemic slows down even further and becomes endemic and we get back to uh, regularness, that we'll start to see this resurgence of all these artists. We already are. We already are seeing that. And how can we make our little corner, our market, um, really profitable. And so we can thrive, not just, not even not, not even just not starving. How can we really thrive on art? Because everyone wants to be entertained and how can we help them be entertained by our art form? Oh, I'm pumped now. So with that in mind, I'm actually going to play in honor of, um, you know, Ferrara, that sort of thing. I'm just going to play for you a little recording from Sound of Ages National ACDA Conference back in March, the virtual one. Whoa, March of 2021, wild. It's coming up on a year ago. Anyway, and we performed a piece by Thomas Tallis, Lo Quebantur, and I want to play that piece for you in honor of Mr. Tallis because he exemplifies not only the composers of the continent who moved around, like Dufayi and stuff, who moved around to find, you know, where the money was, where the art was, the people who went to Ferrara um, and the people who went to uh, um, the Flemish area. I can't remember the city off the top of my head. The people who traveled to Florence, Venice, St. Mark's in Venice, you know, like Monteverdi. There's all these great stories from history about composers who found great patrons. But something that's interesting and unique about the Thomas Tallis is that he was he was a, a Catholic, staunch Catholic, and Elizabeth I was not. And maybe that's why he... You know, there's theories from scholars that maybe give some reasons why the publication Concione Sacre by William Byrd and Thomas Tallis wasn't that well-received and was a financial flop because there are some significantly Catholic texts and undertones in that publication. Um, And Catholics were being persecuted at that time. And so... You know, there's a cool debate of uh, to what extent do you do you uh, 
honor the wishes and the desires and the aesthetic of your patrons you know where is your moral line are there moral lines you have to draw i think that's an interesting discussion to have that we should have on the air someday but this concept of him adapting to the different patrons when it kept going back from anglican to catholic to anglican to catholic and you know it's just a really interesting story of an artist who was not starving and you may have thought well he just wrote and then the queen asked him to and gave him the monopoly on printing and that's not true there's a lot of details about how that came about that him and william bird wrote and asked for it they asked for it and they were already really well established composers who were building patrons of the places in which they already worked but it didn't just happen and so I think Thomas Tallis and William Byrd, maybe Thomas Tallis even more so, because uh, Byrd, you know, William Byrd fled and, and practiced his Catholicism in private. And, but Thomas Tallis really thrived as an artist, and he harnessed his craft. We don't know about, we don't know much about who specifically he may have trained with, but he brought that European style to the English island the island of england he brought continental music over so in a way that was his way of studying with the masters so here is sound of ages lo quebantur a prime example of a composer and a piece that is a thriving artist that we can all learn from
you got to listen to me ramble for far too long. Uh, but it's so good to be back with you. I forgot how much I love doing this, and I love talking about early music, and I love talking about principles of success and how to make early music work, how to thrive in early music. It's totally doable. It's totally possible, and we can all do it. It's freaking awesome. If you like the podcast, go give us a rating, a review, share the podcast with others, give us a download or a subscription. We really appreciate it. Look for things coming from Sound of Ages this year. It's going to be a big year, and uh, we'll see you then. So I hope you all have a great week, not starving, and we'll see you next time on Early Music Monday.